Good morning, church. Take your Bibles this morning and turn over to Mark chapter 3 as we continue our series through the gospel of Mark. And one of the things that happens when you preach expositionally through a book of the Bible, meaning that we don't skip over anything, we just kind of go through chapter and verse, and we kind of unearth, we see what's written there. It leads us into passages, oftentimes, that we find confusing, that we may find hard, and quite honestly, sometimes maybe not even appreciate because of, because of what that implies for our very own lives. But it's good for us. Because the entire word of God is profitable for us and useful for everything, for correction, for rebuke, for training in righteousness. And so we're going to see some of that today. We may not always understand things fully, but by faith we receive them and we accept them. And so we're going to be wading into some deep waters today. And I just pray that the Holy Spirit would work within us to wrestle with these things and to give us clarity and understanding. So if you've got your Bibles open, Mark chapter 3, and I'm going to read from verses 20 through 28, but our focus today is going to be on verses 22 through 28, and here's what we read. And it says this, Then he, and of course that's speaking of Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who had come down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of, the, prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, and the house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Father, as we look at this passage today, would you give us understanding. Would you help us to see the truth and to know it, that we might live there by it, in Jesus' name. As I already said, today we're heading into some deep waters, and the time that we have this morning is not going to be sufficient to unpack everything within this passage. And in fact, you may actually even walk out at the end of this having more questions than you did when you came in. But I also hope that when you walk out that perhaps you may have also gained more truth, more clarity, 
and confidence concerning Jesus. Now, in verses 20 and 21, we see that Jesus' family has chosen to go and fetch Jesus, if you will, because They've heard of the crowds and how Jesus is continually ministering to them, and they actually think that Jesus has lost his mind. Now, I'm not going to focus on these verses today because we'll actually hear more about these verses in next week's sermon because these verses here um, are connected to verses after this. You see, the the passage we're looking at today is an event that happened while Jesus' family put themselves on their journey to go get Jesus. And we'll see what happens with that next week. That's why we'll look at the, the front and the back of the book next week, if you will. But today we're going to look at the event that happened in the meantime. And the big idea that I want us to come away with today from this passage is that Jesus is greater And what I mean by greater, it's not just that he's cooler or better, but that he is more powerful. He's got more authority. And any other authoritative word you want to put in there, Jesus is up there. No one can be compared to him. Jesus is greater. He's greater in might. He's greater in power. He's greater in authority than any other spiritual being. And last week, we looked at three different responses to the passage that we saw that how we could respond. Today, we're going to look at three responses from Jesus. And the first response, or the first way we see Jesus respond, is to defend the work and the deity of himself by dismantling the scribes. So that's the first thing I want you to see this morning is how Jesus dismantles the scribes. So just look at verses 22 through 25 again, and then we'll begin to unpack this. And it says this, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. So we know what's happening. The crowds have been following Jesus. The crowds have gotten massive. They've been crushing in around him. Everybody wants to touch him because they have seen and they have heard of the supernatural demonstration of his power and his authority over sickness, over physical deformities as he makes bodies whole again, and the way that he casts out unclean spirits or demons. And of course, With the people who want healing, along with them, you have a a group of people that are attracted who are simply curious onlookers and even skeptics. Now, we've already seen in the past that the Pharisees, who had this intense hatred for Jesus, were following him around just to keep their eyes on him as they sought to destroy him for discrediting their self-imposed religious system. Now, in this passage today, 
we see another group that came to observe Jesus known as the scribes. Now, here is where this gets really interesting. You see, the scribes of ancient Israel were highly educated men whose job was to study and know the law of God intimately, to know the details and the nuances of the word of God. Their job was to transcribe the law of God. Their job was to, in fact, write commentaries, helping people to rightly understand the word of God. If anyone should have been able to confirm that Jesus was the Savior that had long been promised through the word of God, they should have been the ones to be able to say, this man Jesus indeed is the promised Savior. And they should have been able to do that without any reservation. But what we see instead in verse 22 is that these scribes who knew the scriptures front and back, every jot and every tittle, Instead of affirming who Jesus is, they're actually attacking the character of Jesus by saying that he's possessed by Beelzebul and casting out demons by the prince of demons. Now, we could go on a bit of a rabbit trail here and explain everything there is to know about this Beelzebul, um, but I think it would actually deter from the main point of this sermon, so we're not going to go there. But let me just give you just enough to understand how it fits into this context. Beelzebul was a name or a term that the Israelites used to describe their contempt for Satan. And it was, in a sense, a quite a derogatory term. And a name. And it translates to Lord of Dung. And that's the Christian sanctified version. <laughs> so you see, it wasn't just that the scribes misread who Jesus was. In fact, he aligned with everything the scripture said about the promised Messiah. But here's the thing, they were intentionally slandering and insulting him by associating him with the worst derogatory expression that they had for the devil himself. That's severe. That's intense. So Jesus calls these scribes to himself and he dismantles their argument by revealing to them the flaw in their argument. Remember, they're saying that he's, he's, he's casting out demons by the prince of demons, right? He's, he's, he's in cahoots with, now I even, can't even remember the name here, Beelzebul. So here's the thing. Listen to Jesus' argument against them. How can Satan cast out Satan? And it's a rhetorical question. Because the answer is, well, he can't. Jesus continues to expand this. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. 
And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. You see, the simple idea that Jesus is getting at here is this. Let me use a bit of a metaphor of a team structure. See, when people on the same team don't play as a team, when they don't play with and for each other, when they're actually playing against each other, they can't win. It's impossible. In fact, that team will self-destruct. In light of a nation, if if a nation itself is divided from within, that nation will self-destruct because it's nothing less than civil war. And so it is with a family. A family that's divided within its own house, that family will not be strengthened. That family will self-destruct. And if Jesus was actually casting out demons by the power of the devil, the devil's organization by and in and of itself would destruct. So what he's doing is he's dismantling the scribe's derogatory logic about him and pointing out the glaring holes in their argument about who he is. And then Jesus uses another illustration to reveal what's actually happening. And the illustration he uses demonstrates not only what's actually happening, but it also demonstrates how much greater, because that's the point I want you to get, how much greater he is than Beelzebul and the unclean spirits that he's casting out. So the next illustration that Jesus uses reveals that, and here's the next point, Jesus dominates the unclean spirits. Look at verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. So what exactly is Jesus getting at here? He just kind of defied their logic. He's torn down their arguments. But then he says this strange thing here. And I think it helps. It'll answer the question for us if we remember the context. We know already Jesus has been healing thousands upon thousands of people. Many of them who've been possessed by demons, controlled by unclean spirits. We're not told how they became possessed. All we know is that in some way or another, these evil spirits had taken up residence within people who they then in turn were controlling. And the illustration Jesus uses is very simple. You can't, it's it's, it's this, you can't just walk in and raid someone's house if that person is home, particularly if it's a strong person, what you got to do is you first got to tie up the strong person in his own house, and then you can raid his home. Then you can take what you want. 
So what exactly is Jesus getting at here? Here it is. Many of these people have been taken over by these unclean spirits. They've taken up residence within them. And they're controlling these people. These people are, in essence, their home, if you will. And they're controlling the people. And they're doing with these people as they please. You see, if you want for better understanding, maybe it would, be help, it would help us to put it this way, that, that the strong man that Jesus is referring to could, is, an, is a picture, if you will, of these unclean spirits. They've come into the person and they're controlling him, right? And Jesus is saying, listen, I've come to tie up these unclean spirits and to take their goods. What's the goods? The people they've possessed. That's what I'm doing. Not only am I not working for the devil, I'm actually binding him and taking from him what he's taken. You see, let me put this another way. Jesus is on the offensive. Jesus is not playing defense here. He's on the offensive. And the devil and his demons have no power to resist him. They can't stop him because he's greater. Greater in might, greater in power, greater in authority. He is sovereign over all. Even over the entire spirit realm. And what we're seeing is that Jesus, who is greater, is on the offensive. Yes, he has the power, he has the might, and he has the authority to bind Satan and his demons. And this isn't the only place we see this. The scriptures paint this picture throughout of Jesus' authority to do this. In fact, the book of Revelation, which is a highly symbolic book, we, we actually find in chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, that Satan is being bound for a thousand years to keep him from deceiving the nations. Again, we have that picture of binding there. Then we go over to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, and there God tells us that, or we're told that God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains and gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. They are bound. They are not free to do as they will. And we see that every time he casts out demons, they fear him. They know his authority, his might, and his power. Furthermore, in 1 John 3, 8, we read that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Are you beginning to see the greatness of Jesus? Folks, Jesus is greater. And he's not on the defensive. Jesus is not trying to keep what little domain he has left on this earth. He's on the offensive. Let that sink in. Work that out in your mind as to what that means for you and me in this lifetime. Listen, Jesus is the one who is binding Satan and his forces. And he's destroying the works of the devil. Remember also... 
When Jesus said to Peter and the rest of the disciples, after he had just commissioned them as disciples, and he gave Peter the name Peter, or Cephas the name Peter, and Jesus said, upon this rock I will what? I will build my church and what? And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. See, just think on that verse for a moment. See, that verse there is not a verse about Jesus trying to keep Satan out of the church. Right? That's the position we so often take. It's not a verse about Jesus playing defense, trying to keep the evil ones out. It's about Jesus and his church going on offense. See, here's the thing. In those days, cities were surrounded by a wall. And the only way in and out of the city was through the gates. The gates were meant to keep the enemy out. But the gates of hell, that's what, if you will, picture this here just for a moment. If you will, imagine the church as a city with a wall around it and gates. Imagine hell as a city with gates. That's the point here. That's the picture Jesus is drawing. And Jesus saying this, look, the gates of hell, of the city of hell, will not keep me from penetrating that city. That's the point of that verse. The gates of hell are not going to keep Jesus and his gospel out. The gates of hell is not going to keep the church from penetrating the darkness. Jesus and his gospel, Jesus and his church are going to penetrate the darkness. They're going to penetrate those gates. And he's going to bind Satan and his demons. He's going to pluck people out of the kingdom of darkness and set them free from the devil. Let that sink in. So oftentimes as a church, we're always playing defense. Keep evil out, keep evil out, keep evil out. And yes, the church is no place for evil because we are God's holy people. But we get so wound up and focused on playing defense that we completely negate offense. And that's what Jesus is getting at. Jesus is greater. Jesus has the authority, the power, and the might to go out and to penetrate the gates of hell. They can't keep the gospel out. You can't write a law. You can't put an edict out that'll keep the gospel out. If Jesus wants the gospel in, it's going in. What does that mean for you and me? Let that sink in. Let us have that mentality instead of trying to keep the world out or focused only on keeping the world out, let us get focused that we've been called to a work that is far beyond our power and our might, but we're dependent on him, and he sends us into the darkness. He'll penetrate it, no problem. I hope that speaks encouragement to you. Jesus isn't some weakling. He's all-powerful. Let that be your joy. Let that be your comfort. Let that be your hope. 
particularly as we take the gospel out as well. When the whole world seems to be caving into darkness. Don't worry. Listen, Jesus has this. He's got this. And then Jesus adds one more response as he defends the Holy Spirit through whom he was operating. And so that's my third and final point, is that Jesus defends the Spirit. Look at 28 and 30. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Now, I know that this is a difficult passage that has caused a lot of confusion and sleepless nights for many people. And I have been one of those people in the past who's really struggled with this. Have you ever had that experience where you You've read this and you've wondered, have I ever committed this? Have I? Am I guilty of this? Have I committed the sin that this passage says is not forgivable or seems to say that? Let me also say this, that we cannot unpack everything about this topic this morning. But I'll try to give you enough that hopefully it'll give you clarity and direction in your own life. Jesus says here that all sins will be forgiven and any blasphemies that people may utter, except there seems to be this exception. Whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit, he seems to say never has forgiveness. That's how we read it. And they're guilty of an eternal sin. Like I already said, even myself and probably many of you have asked yourself and wondered, have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Have I committed what Jesus defines as an eternal sin for which there is no forgiveness? Again, for the time allotted for this morning, to answer this question. And I already said to our, uh, our elders that I think this passage warrants us coming back and do a topical sermon on that aspect there. But for this morning, I think we need to remember the context. I believe the context will give us some degree of clarity for our own lives about this. And so as we break this down, hopefully you'll see where you're at in this. Now remember, in this passage, here we had the people that Jesus is talking to were people that were deemed as the highly religious people. People who presented themselves as super saints, if you will. Very, very godly people. That's how they presented themselves. These scribes, were those who had studied the scriptures meticulously. They knew the nuances 
of the passages, or at least so they believed. As I said earlier, they knew every tit and every jottle. They, they knew everything about this. They just they knew the word of God, or at least so they claimed. Not only, listen, they not only knew what the scriptures stated regarding this Savior that God was going to send, but they were also witnessing him. They saw him with their own eyes. They saw the miracles. They saw the healings. It was undeniable, and he perfectly aligned with everything the Scripture said about this Messiah. We read the stories of how Jesus healed many, but think about this from their perspective. They were there, and they saw one person after another coming to Jesus and being healed, being made whole, demons cast out all day long, one after another, one after another, one after another. It wasn't just sporadically, not just one a day or one a week. This was happening multiple times, if not even hundreds or thousands of times a day. It was impossible to deny who Jesus was. It was impossible to deny what he was doing. And they knew it. So, number one, they knew the scriptures. Number two, they were witnessing what Jesus was doing. And the only thing that was, the only option they had was to attribute this to the power of God. Nothing like this had ever been seen. It was undeniable. In fact, they even heard him say that he was the son of God. And yet after thousands upon thousands of healings and miracles, having the full knowledge of who Jesus claimed to be and what the scripture said about him, they refused to admit the undeniable. He could be nothing less than God. And he did what he did by the Spirit of God. And yet, against all evidence and all knowledge, they purposefully and knowingly declared his works as being under the power of the Lord of dung. So let me ask you, have you, having all knowledge about Jesus, about who he is, perhaps you've even seen people around you who came to faith in Jesus and were set free from whether it was pornography or drugs or alcohol or when they came to Jesus, you saw marriages restored. It doesn't matter what, but you just saw their lives completely changed for the good. People who are now carrying the word of God and loving Jesus and serving others where before they were the exact opposite. And are you looking at their lives? And are you saying, that is the power of the devil? That's being done by the power of the devil? Chances are, I'm hoping, that you most likely haven't. 
Because only God can change you for good. Only God. So have you ever knowingly and boldly stated against all clear evidence that that which you are seeing for good is the work of the devil? And if you haven't, then my guess is you most likely have not committed this sin. Listen, if you have ever committed that sin, I don't think you would have participated in communion today, which is the very declaration of who he is, right? If you have ever committed that sin, I don't think you would be here today because you're here because you want more of Jesus not less. And so the reason Jesus' defense of the Spirit is so intense, listen, is because there's no one greater than Jesus. And we know that the Godhead is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all the works that Jesus did when he was on earth were done through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so to slander him and the work of the Holy Spirit is worthy of the greatest judgment because there's no one greater than the Trinity, God Father, God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so to slander him means that there's no stronger slander. You see, the scribes weren't making their judgment of Jesus because they weren't sure whether he was Jesus or not. They made this judgment knowing exactly who he was, but refused to declare him to be who they knew him to be. Because they were protecting their empty religious practices that exalted them instead of God. And so if you have concerns, wondering if you've ever committed this unpardonable sin, I would guess, since you're here, most likely not. And there's more to this passage and this topic right here. And so I think we'll commit to it, we'll come back to it another time to unpack more of this, um, get a fuller understanding of it. But you see, these folks here, these scribes, they had the full knowledge of who Jesus was and were knowingly not only denying him, but also leveling him with the strongest slander they could levy against him. So rest assured, if you love Jesus, you have most likely and most certainly not committed this sin. So how do I wrap this up then? Because it kind of landed with a bang, didn't it? I think I would wrap it up this way. I think this passage is all about Jesus being greater. And Jesus is pointing that out. can bind Satan, he's on the offense, 
is greater in its judgment to those who slander him and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is greater. He sets free. He redeems. And yes, he also binds Satan and his demons. He's on the offensive and he can't be stopped. And the response that we owe Jesus when we see who he is and it's affirmed in our hearts as to who he is. It's not only the declaration, the public declaration of who he is, the son of God, but to then also bow before him in adoration and worship. That's the missing part here. And I pray that today, as we sing once again, that it's not just in that moment that you're giving adoration to Jesus, but that it's a reflection of a life of worship committed to him. Would you pray with me? Father, Jesus is greater. There is no one like him. And I would pray, Lord, that that would be true. For all of us that we would have embraced this truth, that we would acknowledge Jesus to be the Son of God, and that we would, in fact, be filled with the Holy Spirit in committing ourselves to glorify you in all of life. Father, may we find joy that Jesus is the greater, that he is above all, May it be our strength to help us move on and declare, to declare who Jesus is. Lord, we come humbly before you. And unlike the scribes, I pray that we would bow down before you and we would worship you and we would give ourselves in adoration and service to you for you are great. In the name of Jesus.